Are you okay? Don't care. Great. Bring on the bubbly. Babe. Potty Podsters, welcome back to the show. This is Teeny, and this is Are You Okay? The podcast, where we unpack why nobody is okay. And this is the second episode in a three-part Theater is Back series that I'm doing to kind of cap off my second season of the podcast and open up what it's been like to be part of a show, to be back on stage, some of the first theater back in Canada, and share that incredible experience with all of you. Last week, we met the cast. This week, we are meeting Brett Christopher, the Managing Artistic Director of the Thousand Islands Playhouse, and the next week, we're going to be chatting with the director and choreographer of the show. Now, before I get into my interview with Brett, who is not okay, by the way, very down-to-earth, so much fun, I've got a little story to share with all of the podsters. This week on our day off in Gananoque, we have about a week left um, here performing, two more opportunities to stream the show. We spent our day off yesterday kayaking. We did a seven kilometer kayak tour around the Thousand Islands for three hours with an awesome guide named Debbie. Love you, girl. And the reason why Debbie is so iconic is because she was going through all of the protocols with us the hand signals that we would be using out on the water for safety. And so Debbie put her hand into a fist and then she tapped the top of her head three times and she looked directly at me and said, this means, are you okay? And we all fucking lost it. (laughs) So full circle, so much fun. So that happened yesterday. And so here we are with another episode. We're going to be meeting Brett Christopher. He's going to unpack how exactly he brought theater back to the Thousand Island Playhouse, got artists back on stage, got plays back on stage, his journey through COVID with his staff where he let go of nobody during the pandemic. And that's honestly a huge reason why he was able to bring back theater so quickly. Um, His personal story from actor to managing artistic director, which is super unconventional, which is a really inspiring story in itself. So let's meet Brett. Okay, Podsters. I have a creaky chair. Oh my God, you're already fucking it. Oh no, it's bad. Creaky chair. We're not in my usual space. Obviously, there's a slight echo. We're hauled up here in the stage manager's office. Yes, that's what it is. Got a gorgeous view of the St. Lawrence, yeah. and I've got Brett Christopher here with me, who is the artistic director of Thousand Islands Playhouse. The managing artistic director. Oh, oh what's it's the difference? Fancy. So, like, actually, I started as the GM, the general manager, like the business side of things, and then uh, my job morphed into a dual role, which was managing artistic director, which is artistic and administrator. Oh, you gotcha. Yeah. So you're doing double load. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I took all the responsibilities and sprinkled them around and rebuilt the admin and cool. so I do one job. All right, so how long have you been the AD here? I have been managing the AD. artistic director. Whoa. I've been I've been on staff in November. It'll be five years. Okay. So and AD for four. All right, so let's take it back. Where are you from? Who are you? I know you were oh an actor God. first. Yes. Yeah. I didn't start, I went to theater school when I was like 26. <gasps> no way. So I actually had never done a play. I had done like one play before that. Oh, I love this. All right. Yeah, I did not really understand theater, acting, any of that stuff. And I uh, 
the, it's a very long story, but I went to I went to Trent University for two years for mm, I don't know drinking. And <laughs> Then I got, uh, this is so awful, I got rusticated, which is, you're not allowed to go to any Canadian university for one year. Oh. They basically say, like, you are a terrible student. Like, you're okay, not just gotcha. bad, you're terrible. So I went home, uh, and my family moved to Kingston, so I was in Kingston with them, and I went back to high school. Okay. I was 21 years old in high school, like in grade 11 biology. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was really weird. But so I was to like, get your marks up. Yeah, I was like, I'm just going to go do science math. I never did that. I had done Englishes and histories and whatever. So I was like, I'm going to do sciences and math. So I did all the sciences and all the maths. And then when I was there in high school, at 21 years old, I auditioned for the school musical. Okay, and what was the show? Anne of Green Gables. <gasps> Stop. Not yeah. the Canadian classic. The Canadian classic and Green Gables. Because I was 21, I played Matthew. Okay. Basically, I was the old man. And weirdly <laughs> enough, that production, so it was at KCVI in 1994, and Shalina Kennedy was Anne. Stop. Yeah, and Mev Beattie was Marilla. Oh my so gosh. Weird, right? All three of those people actually went on, I mean, certainly Shalina and Mev are both in like, you know, Leading roles at major theaters. They are incredible. Yeah, both of them incredible are performers. Yeah, and I'm here again. It's awesome. Oh, stop. <laughs> okay, but that so kind anyway, of... That's a, kind of like the beginnings. And I kind of was like, oh, that's cool. I want to... Drama's neat. Singing on a stage is fun. Yeah. And then uh, moved away from that. Finished a degree at Queens. Bought a restaurant. Uh, ran a restaurant for a couple years. What? And then I was kind of bored of that, and so I auditioned for a theater school and got it. And that is the most. That is so. Yeah, it was so weird. It was just trying stuff. But it, it's really fascinating. But it also makes a lot of sense to me. Like some of the best people in this industry took a million different routes to yeah. get there. Yeah. And then that life experience, right? As opposed as opposed to being like born and bred into music theater. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I actually was, I, I mean, I was going to share it, right? I was, I was going to musical theater and then at the last minute I'm like, I, I don't think this is gonna be my path. Uh, I'm not a good singer, I'm a terrible dancer. <laughs> but at that point they were like, well, only four men auditioned. So couldn't you please come? And instead I went to George Brown and studied. And how was George Brown? It was good. It was. It was like it took a pretty hard beating. It's a, it's a challenging course. I mean, like there's been a lot of discussion since. That's you know this of course years ago about the training at schools like that and whether or not they really have regard for the interior life of students and you know how damaging some of that teaching can possibly be. You don't say. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you know, like as a twenty-five year old. Uh, white straight dude I was in that program with as much privilege as you can probably have right and so when I reflect back on it I think well yeah it was like really good for me like I was really cocky and I really needed to be taken down a peg to become an artist right I need I yeah. love to perform and I love people watching me but I needed to have my ass handed to me so that I could tear just just start to dig into the, my interior. Peel back the layers. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's very easy for me to say because I obviously carried a lot of just confidence from the position that I hold in society, right? As the white straight young guy that I was. Yeah. So, not young. 
But uh, <laughs> so I reflect that back on it quite positively, but I really understand the perspective of people that look back at that and say that was extremely damaging. And I saw stuff in class that when I think back about it, I'm like, I just, how do those people survive that? Like viciousness, that level of viciousness. It's so I know it's like I don't want to get no. too deep into theater school, but it can be. I still have a relationship to those professors and those teachers that is like such a power imbalance. So funny story. I saw a teacher online who was like teaching a course online. One of my longtime teachers at George Brown. I won't say who it is, but <laughs> I, I was like, oh my gosh, like there he is. And so I went online to a little, his like webinar or whatever, and I made a comment, and the comment was like, you were a great teacher. You know, like, and kind of like, look where I am. I'm an artistic director. Yes. You know, like, <laughs> I've made it, haven't I? Haven't I? It was like really needy, right? It was sort of like this idea of like, well, your teaching was really important to me, and like, thank you so much. And he saw the comment, he's an older guy, and he's like, oh yeah, Brett Christopher, I don't really remember him. Oh yeah, so, you know, like he had, zero regard for who I was, didn't really remember me, and I'm like, this guy carries so much power over me, uh, and I'm nothing to him, absolutely nothing. I'm like, I gotta just let that go. One of like thousand students, exactly. right? That who he's cares? taught over the years. Like, these teachers have so much power, especially in those in that, that infancy of your development as an artist. Right, I mean, this episode's taking a turn, but yeah, I'm kind of here for it because no, but because I had a similar experience as well. Mm -hmm. So I had a really positive experience in theater school. Mm -hmm. But I've had that teacher too, right? Yeah. That yeah. victimized certain students while I sat and watched. Yeah. And like, you know, we can look back on it fondly, but we can also look back on it and say, no, 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 that wasn't right. And we do this differently now and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So you okay. graduated yeah. from George Brown. So I graduated from George Brown. I just kind of was a performer, like an actor in Toronto. Uh, you know, did was doing three, four, five plays a year, and there was a moment after about a decade of doing that and like dabbling in administration. Like yeah. I, I, I tempted buddies in the office there. I tempted another, like just sort of all over the place. After like a, about a decade of slugging out, I was uh, I just was like people and we were saying like, wow, you have a really successful career. You're doing like all these plays. It's amazing. And I was like, I'm making like $15,000 a year. How am I ever gonna have babies? Or like, yeah. um, how is anyone ever gonna love me? Like really, like, sort of like this feeling of like, oh crap, like I am not a commodity as a partner. I am gonna be like a, a, a sort of sucker fish on whoever I find to love me. <laughs> I'm like, can't relate at all. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? It's like, <laughs> any doctors in the house? Every night on theater and on stage, is there any doctor here? <laughs> um, so I just had to make a decision at that point. I was like, I really need to, I mean, now I would say I need to sort of diversify my interests. Uh, so like I love, I love acting, love it. I love the creation of the character and the creation of the story with other people. But I was like, I need to just move away from that so that I can have a salary. So Build I, the future that you want. Yeah, and I, and I was like, you know, I love the idea of making opportunities for other people too, which is very much my role now. It's like to finding money and building opportunities for other artists to make their work. And that to me is like all this, maybe this was my calling. My calling wasn't to be an actor. I was like a good actor, not a great actor. I think there was, uh... a, there, no, 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 there's like an impediment, <laughs> which I think I always carried, which is 
Like I naturally want to be the best, right? I want to be the best, but I wasn't willing to sacrifice everything to become that best because I wanted these other, I had these other goals, right? Other I family, know, so I'm kind of like, going through that yeah, right now. Yeah. Like a big part of, of it is like travel, right? Even like as I got married and I had kids and I was still traveling as an actor, that was like a major problem in my totally. relationship, in my family. And I'm like, I, there's a point where I'm going to be asked to sacrifice the things that I hold most dear. This is so hard. Look at your face. You're like, oh my gosh. No, but I'm talking about my future. <laughs> oh shit. I'm like, my eggs are dying. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Literally, just, <laughs> I can feel them just popping. No, pop but I, I couldn't tell you. I luckily good friends with an infertility specialist. But oh, there you go. Okay, a yeah, whole yeah. other episode. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's so, you're like kind of reading my mind right now because of course, like it's not like you have to give up your dreams to start a family, yeah. that's not it. It's just sometimes you redirect them. Yeah. Well, you have to invest yourself, I think, and maybe this is, again, part of the training that I had. It's like, I want to invest myself absolutely fully into my art in order to make the best possible thing that I can put on a stage and what will I sacrifice in order to do that? And there are lots of things in my life that I won't sacrifice. And so because for that reason, I was like, I can't be a full-time actor. Okay, so when did that happen and when did you stumble into this position? Uh, <laughs> oh God. I'm just like asking yeah, yeah, for yeah, the yeah. full story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I moved to Kingston. My family was here. My wife's family was here. So Kingston being 25 minutes away from where we're sitting. Yeah. And I just was like, I need a new path. So like, of course, again, like all of just twists and turns, right? Follow your impulses. So my impulse was like, I think it was like holiday season. We were walking downtown Kingston because we were visiting family. And it was like Christmas lights and like everyone's singing carols on the sticks. Like something out of like a Dickens novel without <laughs> the poverty and all that stuff. Just, just like pure. And I was like, oh my God, this is, I want this. So we just, we moved. No jobs in hand. We just moved. Uh, we ha- we owned a house in Toronto, which was very lucky. So we sold that house and moved here, and bought a house and just found opportunities here. And the weird thing about communities of this size is, you can make like as an artist, you can actually make an impact really fast. Yeah, I've because heard people that. are really excited by new ideas. And you know, if you're coming from Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver or some of the bigger urban centers. You're like, you're seeing immersive theater. You're, you're experiencing these things all the time. But when you come to a city this size of Kingston, 130,000 people, you start talking about, you know, uh, sleep no more. And people are like, what the fuck what? is that? Like, what? Yeah, what? What? You walk into a hotel and it's Macbeth and it's dance and it's, you know, <laughs> there's naked people in the basement. Like, what is that? I don't get that. So you can go like, okay, well, I can like actually mine stuff that's happening, like trends and build really cool experiences for people that have never had that presented to them. So like, I I actually am a big proponent of moving into smaller communities and bringing that art into these communities and exciting people about it. So So I should move here. Yeah. (laughs) And the other thing is you have access, you know, I have sat down with the mayor of Kingston many times and talked about art. Yeah. I can guarantee you, I would never sit down with John Tory. I would never be able to get into his office. Right, I hear what you're saying. See, he's like, like the, the mayor of Kingston was like, tell me what I need to do to make this into a cultural city. Like, how, how does, you know, like, wh- how would that happen in Toronto? You'd have to go through like 16 rungs oh, of Oh no, it just probably wouldn't happen. Instead, he's like, what do I have to do? Where do I have to put the money? Like, who do I have to work with? Like, how, how, how do I accomplish this? 
To me, I'm like, that. that is great. That's honorable. As an artist, Pretty it's cool. so awesome. So yeah. awesome. So anyway, so I, I went there. I ended up taking over uh, Theater Kingston, which is like a small producing company in Kingston. Okay. I sort of cut my teeth there for five years, figuring out like just generally how to produce, uh, act, produce, etc. And then the Playhouse came calling. So they, they basically called and said, we need you to do what you're doing there. Like that sort of entrepreneurial spirit, we need you to bring that into a regional company like this one and just start to bend the old ways of doing things into a more sort of entrepreneurial vibe. Wow. Yeah, so that's why I arrived five years ago and it's kind of been that ever since. Now, like, of course it's not, okay, now we're gonna do only fringe theater, right? Because you have a lot more responsibility here with like a subscription base and a lot of artists that rely on working here, but um, yeah, it's been fun. It's like a playground. That's right? so cool. Well, yeah. thanks for sharing that. Yeah. That's the whole story. Good night. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. You're not okay. I'm no. to realize that. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm not okay. Who wants to be okay? This is the best place for that. Yeah. So, okay. So obviously we got to talk about the theater and COVID, okay. right? So what exactly happened? When did we stop talking about the theater and COVID? Do you not want to? I mean, I got to ask it though. No, 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 no. I'm good. I'm good. But there'll be a point where I'm like, I'm no longer talking about <laughs> the theater and COVID. Now I'm talking about the theater and theater. Yeah. And, and we are moving away from it, but now it's becoming like theater, like still during a pandemic. Yeah, you know I, what I mean? Like yeah. that's the gag of it all. But let's do kind of like reel it back a, a, a year and a half ago when yeah. the pandemic hit what did that look like for you guys here yeah. at well, the playhouse uh, I mean the short version is we had sold $400,000 worth of tickets to a 2020 season which was going to be the, one of the biggest in our company's history and March 13th 2020 you know we went oh no we're going to have to you know like just Close not, not sell tickets for a little bit and everyone go home and we'll, I'll call you it's going to be great and then two weeks and three weeks and three months and, you know cancel this show cancel that show and then cancel the season and at that point we were like we were screwed like screwed so like so many other companies of our size that was holding this big bank of tickets and we uh you know we just kind of soldiered on that was really it were you scared can i ask that yeah there was a point where i, I mean, there have been like three or four points in my time here uh especially right when I was brought in, where I thought like, I can't fix this problem. I love fixing problems, I love puzzles, I love all of that stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, I have come up against a problem to which there might not be a solution that I can figure out. Like this is like a math problem on a board that like good little hunting. I can't, I'm looking at this <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't know how. No, and so that was this, sure. and then I was like, okay, what I always do in that situation is I uh, just go solo walk around, garden, like whatever it is, just try and like clear the deck of all the other people, the needs, all of that stuff, and then just start to sit in the problem. And then like, yeah, in this situation, like a bunch of stuff kind of percolated to the top of not necessarily solutions to the pandemic, but ways that the company could do something, like make an impact in that moment. And I think like, you know, as I was sort of rambling on, but like for me in that moment, the company changed from focusing on making plays to like espousing values 
And it's, it's, it's interesting because I it's like, you know, when you think of big brands and things like that, you go like, oh yeah, that's a values driven organization or that's like a product driven organization. Yeah. And for me, that was actually a turning point for the company. And we've talked about like now at the board level and within the company, we talk about the pandemic ironically being a transformative moment for the company yeah. where it kind of like grew up, right? Went like, oh wow, we, we have a responsibility to our community. We have a responsibility to our audience, to our artists. We, we aren't just making plays. So what are some examples of that? Of the how you guys kind of shifted? Yeah, the very first thing that we did, and really, again, it was sort of like, we leave on Friday from the office. I'm like, we are so fucked. I know. <laughs> we're I can so, only imagine. It's like, we're carrying all of the tickets and the revenue. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to write so many checks back to people who have to, and on Monday morning coming in and going, okay, that's not a problem for today. The problem for today is we have generally seniors coming to the theater, right? We have a lot of uh, older women who are no longer a partner. So they're living at home alone. Let's get the list and just start calling people. And, and, I, and the goal was we're going to repay the loyalty that these people have shown us for the last 40 years. Oh. That's it. And there was no agenda. There's no like, then they'll donate their tickets or then, then, they'll, then they'll give us money or then there was like zero agenda. It was like, just call them and ask them what they need. And that was all we did for like weeks. Really? We just got the list and literally one by one, let's call. Hey, how are you doing? It's, you know, Brett, Jeremy, whoever from the Playhouse. And are you okay? And some people just needed to talk for 20 minutes because they're alone. Absolutely. And they're, and they're 80 and they're scared. There is this massive virus that's out there beyond their window and they don't know. Targeting them. Yeah, they don't know how, like, could they die? They don't know. So, you know, got stuff for hand sanitizer, whatever it was at that moment that they felt they needed. And just talk to people. It was very, very interesting. It was, I was I like, what? And, and I think that was the launch pad for this idea of like, oh, a community helps, us, helps one another. And like in Toronto, a company of this size or operating budgets, whatever, like 2.5 million, right? You, you think of like Tarragon, it's about virtually the same. Tarragon is like in the theater world, it's a big thing, but in the city of Toronto, it's like a, you know, like a arts organization. It's not like one of the main things in Toronto. In Gananoque, Ontario, there's 5,000 people. The Playhouse, this company, is one of the biggest organizations, naturally. So we also bear the responsibility to protect that community yeah. and to like keep them up out of the, out of, from drowning. And I was like, that's what we're gonna do. For the next however long it takes, we're literally just gonna put the community on our shoulders and keep the morale up, do activities, use our like creative energy, we can't make plays. Instead, we're going to make people happy. Like we're just gonna keep get them through this time. Yeah, I it's, mean. Yeah, it was, like it was nuts because we're like, oh my gosh! At the same time, we're like over here going like, are we gonna survive this as a company? But like, I was like, it, it almost doesn't matter. The thing that matters right now is that we help people and that we stay alive. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think that's so. Wow, I'm like very moved. Am I okay? I start crying. <laughs> um, but it's it's redirecting that energy back to what's really fucking important. Yeah. Right? And I mean, I was following you guys online at that time because I was supposed to be here last summer. Yeah. And I was, yeah, the podcast you did and like live music and events and yeah. like 
that pizza delivery you guys did. I remember all of this because Lord knows I wasn't doing anything. We know. Um, And yeah, well, so that's incredible. So you did mention something to me opening night that you did not let go of any of your staff. No. Yeah, that was probably the big, I mean, and I think, you know, if I'm probably going to take us to right now, like why do we have plays on a stage and virtually nobody else does? You know, like the big, big festivals do, but virtually no one else is producing theater right now, especially not indoors. And I think the decision to keep the staff employed, um, that was before the wage subsidy came along. Like, there was a moment where I went to the board and I said, here's a crazy idea. We keep everyone on. We actually offer, you know, we have, we have maybe like 12 to 20, depending on like front of house, people like that, seasonal people that come in. I said, we're gonna go, we'll be able to offer work to like the say six core production seasonal staff. We'll offer them contracts, even though we have no work for them because we're not making plays. But we need, again, similar to what I was saying about the audience, we need to repay the loyalty that people have shown this company. They've given up their life for this art. It's time that theater respects that sacrifice, right? And so we as a company, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I went to the board and sort of said like, hey, this is gonna hurt. Like financially, this is gonna hurt. And and I'll be frank, this is not a company that's always had a lot of financial heft. Like it's been in a debt situation for many years, this company. So that's not sort of an easy decision to make where you go like, ah, some donor's gonna write me a $150,000 check and who cares? It was like a decision that's like, okay, this is a moral decision. This is not a financial decision. It's like, we want to keep these people on. And also, I don't want to find myself at the end of the pandemic having to hire a whole bunch of people and, and everyone who was good and cool and working with us is gone, right? Yeah. Has gone to other sectors, probably. So, so yeah. So that, to me, is like why we made it to this moment where everyone was already humming. Everyone was already working together. The business was moving. Production was doing stuff. You know, we may not have been making plays, but we were engaged creatively. And so when we came forward and we were like, okay, let's start moving towards production. Like, okay, let's just start doing what we used to do. Yeah, right? when did you make the decision to have this, I don't want to call it a COVID season. It but is like, kind of, it's like a mini season. COVID it's a, season. It's a, it's a little amuse-bouche. Um, I, uh, so we had four in the fall. We did a whole bunch of projects over the summer, which yeah. were like, like we rebuilt the backstage here and like did a bunch of stuff. At the end of the, and we sort of dealt with all the tickets, uh, like cleaned up the 2020 season, basically. Communicated with all the artists, like yourself, who were supposed to work here and couldn't, which was brutal. Uh, we got to the fall, and it was like, okay, guess what? We're still in a pandemic. And so we had a meeting as a, as a staff. We sat together and said, okay, I'm dividing the companies into four groups. One is community, one is uh, like marketing, development, communications, one is education, and one is the future, like how to get back. Presentation, we call that a bunch of things. So group one was basically like, how do we help the community? The Salvation Army just closed, so there's not gonna be any winter coats available to people in this community, and there's a lot of like lower income families in this community. Okay, you're in charge of like figuring out that problem. Okay, Halloween is coming up, kids can't go, do like Halloween trick-or-treating because of COVID. So we need to solve that problem. We gotta get candy to the kids again in Aquay. Like like community stuff, right? Like how do you build community? And and also inspire other groups to do the same. That to me was also part of it. Be like, you know, with just a little bit of like energy and imagination, you can do really cool stuff. So like 
we don't have to be the only one. Like, go, go, go. Uh, so, and, and so, you know, marketing development communications was education. Like, we had never really delved into much education. So we started, like, expanding that stuff. We did a bunch of online yeah. stuff with high schools. And, and then the fourth one was presentation, for lack of a better term. And that one was, like, research globally and find out how we get back. What are people doing right write now? Us, write us a plan to get back into our theaters. And they investigated everything from like like Blythe, like it's like building an outdoor theater. We investigated like going into other spaces, going into other communities. We we did like, you know, temperature test. Remember when temperature was the big thing? Uh, <laughs> you're gonna have like a gate that you walk through, like at the airport. So it was a whole bunch of best practices and like research. And then eventually coming up with the plan and then the plan to to do productions. And that's where we ended up here. But were you relying on Ontario allowing 50 people to gather indoors? Yeah. Initially, we were, we because there was that color-coded framework. Yeah. And the cool thing about being out here, so in terms of COVID, as opposed to like in downtown Toronto, right. is the numbers have always been very small out here. So we could dream like this. We're not... You know, we don't see families around us who are suffering with like loved ones who are ill, terminal Overly in the hospital. populated parts of Toronto. Yeah, like yeah, yes, yes. People going to work sick. Exactly. Multi-generational so families in the same space who are like, you know, all of that sort of intersection in terms of uh, bringing the illness into like intergenerational, like yeah. school kids coming back and giving to their grandparents. Like it's, that stuff, you know, was not happening in this region. So we could think about yeah. what what are we gonna do? Like Fair. How, how can we make plays? Uh, as opposed to, you know, like batting down the hatches. Um, so what was that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just rambling. No, I uh, love it. It's great though. It's it's very like people are gonna listen and be like, oh shit, he figured it out. Yeah. So so we were saying like how did it how did you manage okay, plays, let's make plays, get the plays on stage. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really what it was. it was. And then you kind of go into your normal process, which is like, you're gonna find the plays, find the directors, find the designers, find the artists, figure out where they're gonna live, like all of those pieces, which is sort of our standard process. It's just, there's a whole much stuff to it. Like, you know, who's gonna get tested and when, when you have to wear masks, we're gonna cohort people into like dedicated accommodations. Again, a benefit of being way out here and bringing artists from other cities is you can actually bubble the artists. As opposed to, you know, if you're in a Stratford company, you are going home to your family every day, so you, it's impossible to be bubbled with the artists that you're working with. Fair. So like, we have these little pieces that are benefits to our particular situation that other people don't have. So I, I think, you know, like we have a lot of advantages in this time that other companies would not have, of course. But we also, yeah, had all this group of staff who just used their imagination to figure it out. That's, that was really what it was. So where are you guys now? Like, are you all in love with each other? Like, so <laughs> happy to be, like, working out of place? Yeah, like, you know, I would, it's not perfect. Of course, there's, there's massive stressors right now. So we've lost a couple people along the way. Of course. We have, you know, we have had run-ins, of course, but also a great deal of respect. I think, like... It certainly has tightened the company in terms of the various areas, various arms of the company have really tightened in because we've been intersecting a lot more. Like we've been working a lot more together. So, uh, because we have these various projects. 
you know, it, it's also given us a lot of time to take pause and think about things like anti-racism and anti-oppression. These are like things that have arisen this year, uh, you know, and things that we've always put in grant applications and we promote diversity. But it's like, oh no, we, we, don't, we have never really considered anti-racism as an element of what we do here. Or what, what actions are you actually taking mm -hmm. to ensure that the environment that you're creating in, not just the company, but the community, is a place where artists of color, artists from marginalized groups can actually create art without having the, like, the weight of you know people feeling prejudiced against them, et cetera. Yeah, they can come and thrive. Yeah, exactly. Create an environment where people can thrive from the artists to the staff to the volunteers to the audience is the answer. That is the answer. It's just very Look at you. Yeah, what that's a mouthful. The answer. Absolutely. So, okay. So we've okay. covered the COVID cult. Yeah. <laughs> I'm between shows. Can't Are speak. you okay? No. <laughs> um, so in, we've covered the <laughs> You asked it earlier too, but in like a serious sense, so I didn't want to stop you. Okay, nice. We were calling the people of the community and asking them if they were okay. Yeah. I'm like, sweetie, they oh, were. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so we've covered the COVID of yeah. it all. Yeah. Um, so, how have you, Brett, like personally, because mm -hmm. I know you have a family and mm -hmm. you were dealing with all of those layers as well during the pandemic and managing artistic director, how have you really evolved? Hmm. <laughs> Are you drinking a lot? Like what's happening? No, I was and I stopped. Like it's like like testing vices, I'm right? just so playing like, with you. No, no, don't no, have no, to no. answer that. No, that's good. I'm glad. Uh, I think everyone has tried to find different ways like balms for the pandemic. It's sort of like and I think like I have a lot of friends who are like, "Oh, it's our bottle of wine tonight." And I like I was like, "Wow, bottle of wine every night." Okay. But it's like everyone's just trying to do their best. Soothe themselves through this terrible moment. And for me, the greatest thing that like makes me feel better is solutions. It's okay, fun. yeah, you're it's, a problem solver, eh? Yeah. I really like uh, to be challenged. So I mean, going back to George Brown, right? That was the irony is I'm going all the way back to that. Love. Which is I was told after six months in that program, leave, which was their favorite, leave. Gotta go. You're not an actor. Mm -hmm. And they said. Uh, I could throw a rock and hit a hundred more talented people than you. That I don't. I never forget. A twenty some odd years ago, and I was like, "Fuck you!" And but it's like, "Oh, really?" Lit but it's like, fire under yeah, us. yeah. And in the same way, it's like you're gonna put a wall in front of me, and I'm going to work like nobody else to either get over it, get around, or get through it. Yes. Yeah. So, so, and that is how I react, right? I'm not saying that is one way. That's one way, not the best way. Is just what drives me. So to me in this situation, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna make plays. Oh, that's what we were talking. We were talking about yeah. the 50 people inside and all that stuff. I'm gonna make plays, whether it's to five people in the room, because I want artists to be paid. It's really important to me that artists have work. It's really important to me that the community has audiences where they're going to their local restaurants, where they're going to the local art well, that's galleries. It like too, these businesses right? rely on us, even if we only have. I think we'll probably have. 10% of an audience of what we normally would have, but it's like, that's important, right? It's very Absolutely. important that there are people People are around. still going into those cafes now a little more than they were. Yeah, and for audiences, I think it's, in, it's integral that they're reminded of how important theater is to them. Yeah. Uh, you know, a fun show like back in 59, it's not like people aren't doing any sort of deep thinking afterwards, right? They're not doing any deep thinking. <laughs> it's 
Well, you know, maybe they're like, oh. Oh, yeah, the no. 50s, they were so great. Why did we ever leave? Not those car crashes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's inside baseball. I don't know if anybody listening. I guess they, if they watch the live stream, they'll know what that means. It's just a part of the show that is somewhat of a parody, but can also be taken very seriously. But yeah. anyways, I feel like... I'm just saying, there is a thing that you're doing in that play that when people walk out, they're like, this is everything that I want, why I want the pandemic to be over. This is it. Yeah. That what I'm feeling here, this this room full of people, this like collegiality, this, joy. this moment together, the joy, the kind of just... The, the, just the sheer of like release of the pandemic, even the people in masks. I honestly think they forget they're in masks. Absolutely, I got to see Sexy Laundry. Yeah. And JCJ and I were like clutching each other yeah. by the end. Yeah. Bawling, laughing, like yeah. I was like, that was the best show I've ever seen. Yeah. I don't know if it's because it genuinely was, mm-hmm. or I was just feeling so many things that I had never felt before. Mm-hmm watching something that I was so used to watching. Yeah. Going, going to a show was so normal. And you go like, oh wow, this is really important. Yes. You know, like, it's really important. And that's it. So you're kind of answering all my questions. Am I? Because I was going to ask you, like, why do audiences respond so well to this show back in 59? Mm-hmm. You know. There's like a nostalgia thing to it, but I think there's more. There's just innate. People love to laugh and sing and dance, right? They love to. It's, it's like why people sing in the shower. Even like old grumpy people sing in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> because they love it. Singing is such a beautiful, vulnerable, wonderful release of all of the plaque that we have. So to me, I think a show like this, as like cotton candy and joyful and silly as it is, has a very important part to play. A very important part. Yes. And I've had friends who have come to see your performance who have had like... Uh, loved ones die in the last like month, two months, and they have you know texted me afterwards. They're like, that was like I. It's the first time I have smiled since my mom passed away. Like right. it's the first time I've felt like I've forgotten that because I'm sitting here in this wonderful room full of joy and happiness, and I'm and I'm reminded of what what will be, like what will come that happiness. Just a smile, right? Yeah. Like I know I need an insane amount of Botox from all the facial expressions after this is all I, done. I, I've given up. <laughs> I'm like, forget I'm it. like the crow's feet because I'm literally up there with a plastered on <laughs> genuine fucking smile for 90 minutes. So I didn't go to musical theater college school. Oh Lord. Do they teach you that? Do they teach you to smile like that? Well, it's funny because when you were talking about George Brown, I went to John yeah. Abbott in Montreal. Yeah. And it's three years of that like intense conservatory style training as well. And then I went to Randolph. Mm-hmm. So I didn't go to Sheridan. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is that a point of contention? No, not at all. It's okay. just like, I, I just never went. I never yeah. even auditioned. Um, and I'll just say, I didn't think I was good enough to go there. So, right. you know, um... Which is hilarious. That's okay. We're not doing this today, Teeny. Um. <laughs> no, let's do this I'm today. I'm not good enough. I think every actor has an imposter. We're going there, eh? I mean, I... It's interesting. Like, imposter syndrome. That's a big term. It's kind of like narcissist. It's mm-hmm. kind of like gaslighting. We all mm-hmm. love to say that kind of shit nowadays. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you're right. I think that... What's the latter? Having a massive ego? I mean, you've been in those halls. Where that somebody walks in, and you're like, oh my gosh, they take up a lot of space. Oh yeah. And 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 you know, then you sort of go like, oh my gosh, they're a good actor and I'm a bad actor. And you're like, <laughs> no, they're just loud. 
They're just, exactly. you know, they just chew up a lot of oxygen. And I'm quite loud, so I don't want to be that person. Oh, I know. <laughs> let's talk. Let's do that. Okay. Let's do what? So when you are on the first day of rehearsal, to me, that's like the key moment. Oh, God. To indicate okay. the kind of person that, that you're, you are, you're going to be, etc. Do you pick out a special outfit? Um, yeah. I'd okay. say that I definitely... Well, you qualify. You pick out a special outfit. Fuck off! Who doesn't pick their outfit out for the first day? I think some don't. I think some people, you know when people come in and they're kind of like slovenly and they're kind of like some old t-shirt. And they truly don't care, which is another I, I, model. That's my dream. I would love to be that person. I know. So you're telling me you picked out your outfit no, too. Every time. Every time. <laughs> of course. You go like, oh, my arm muscles look bigger in this shirt. And oh God, I really hope they think I'm, I'm well, not this it. character. This character is sexier than I am. Or this character is meaner than I am. Like whatever. Well, that's it. I mean, I'm working with these three, they're like fucking ears yeah. and the harmony gods of Toronto <laughs> and I'm like Steve can I get that recorded yeah. so of course I have my moment there where I'm like oh my god like and it's like they're like teeny you're fine mm. but you know we all have our moments of like this is what I'm good at and then oh, I'm so good at so I'm not gonna let that part of me shine as much yeah. right but what was your original question about no music no let's go back because like to me that's <laughs> like a really key Therapy part of success is you go, okay, because you're not good at everything. No. And I, and I, like when I, I only start to have success as a performer when I'm like, you know what, Brett? You're not the guy that the audience wants to like rip off his shirt and like flex and do whatever. That's not your hit. That's not what you're going to be successful at. You're going to be this character and these group of, of personae and, and that's what you should really fight to get. And I'm like... I think the minute you realize what you're good at and what you're not good at, like what you just said, that's when you start to succeed as an actor. Totally. And I'm all for that. Like, I know what my quote-unquote hit is. Yeah. However, if there's anything that we've learned these last couple of years is that, like, the industry's trying to move away from that. But at the same time, is it really? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we want to say, like, film and television, for example, being slightly underweight. Like, always, these actors, right? So... And, you know, it's like, we want to believe that it's changing, and it is, and it's a slow burn. But I'll say it right now, on my fucking show, I don't think it's changing that fast. No, I agree. I agree. Uh, I think because people naturally have a sense of what someone who, uh, like, for example, someone who is in love looks a certain way, which is the most fucking ridiculous thing ever. Everyone falls in love. Everyone. Every shape, size, color. Like, of course. I know. So it's like, why should a certain shape of person be a love interest. It totally. doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Or an ingenue. Or yeah. the best friend. It's like yeah. hilarious. So, I'm going but back I get to theater it. school. I'm going back to theater school. Okay. So when I was in theater school, you know you do like, George Brown, you do like a play in second year, you do like four plays in the final year. Yeah. Kind of like, it's all just about the plays. And, and you know, like often I would play, well no, first I played all the dads because I was the old guy. And then eventually I just got to play some of the lover roles, right? The sort of like leading guy roles. And, the last play that I did, uh, a woman who was in the class who did not look like an ingenue, like it was much sort of different shape, size, style than a sort of traditional ingenue, said, you know, like I would like to play a role where I love, where I, where I have a heart, where I'm not the matron, where I'm not the nurse. Uh, so like, okay, I, don't, I guess so. So they, you're not going to play that role in the industry and all of that stuff. Fucking ass. So, <laughs> so they gave it to her. And opposite me. And I, the first time that we did it in performance, and she turned and looked at me in the eyes, 
And I'm like, I have never experienced that from, a, from an actor before in terms of love. I was like, that woman knows love. She, she has, it burns inside her. And it, I was like, this is, this is what we have lost by considering that a certain shape of person equals a certain type of person. Or uh, certain, it's like yeah. the, what she is telling me without even saying words is, is an entire book full of love. And I'm like, that's what I want to work with. Like that's an actor, right? This person is bringing up all of the stuff that's inside her. And probably because she hadn't had the opportunity to express this stuff artistically, she was like, well, this is it. Because she was busy playing Juliet's nurse. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Okay, wow. Yeah, let's not end on COVID. Yeah. You just brought it up again. No, damn it. Anything else, Verrett? Thank you so much for doing this. Thank My you pleasure. for hiring, I mean, keeping your staff on and then bringing us back. I am eternally grateful. Yeah. And this is just the beginning. You might it be back is. on the show. Yeah. No, it's, it is, uh, it's been a pleasure. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today, Brett. It was really refreshing getting your perspective on the industry and bringing theater back and leveling up. That has been the theme of this season, Podsters, to level up and to hear Brett's story from actor to managing artistic director, the lows and the high points of that, and then handling the pandemic in a way that I have yet to hear anyone handle it is like the ultimate leveling up story. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you, Podsters, for tuning in to another episode and supporting this podcast. It means the world to me. Please rate and review, follow and subscribe. It really helps the show out because after next week, when we meet the director and choreographer, I'm going to be stepping back for a little bit and regrouping and planning for an epic season three. So I want to hear from all of you. What do you guys want to see? What do you guys want to hear from me i'm all ears dms are always open go ahead and check me out on instagram at teeny time like the podcast on facebook if you're a baby boomer that's for you baby are you a oh my gosh who uses facebook anymore teeny i gotta make sure my mom and all of her friends know what i'm up to you know what i'm saying um so yeah I'll see you guys next week with another episode. Make sure to check out my merchandise if you haven't already. Big plans for some new stuff there. And I'll see you next week.